Well, at the church, my name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, as Emily said earlier, welcome uh, to uh, all of you who are new, and happy Mother's Day to you moms. Glad to have you guys here uh, today with us. Uh, if you're brand new or, or just one of us, been here for years maybe too. So welcome to you all. Uh, we are in Acts right now as a church in a sermon series that will take us through 2019. So a long way to go, but we are in Acts 12, 20 to 25 today. So if you want to turn there in Bibles or phone apps you've got, that'd be great. But this is a shorter passage that actually fit on your sermon insert today. If you picked up one of those things on the way in, it actually fit. Uh, barely, but it did. Uh, this will be on screen here as well, too. Uh, but Acts is a New Testament book. It's the, uh, the story of the Acts of Jesus Christ post-resurrection and ascension into heaven and sending of the Holy Spirit of God into the world to convict of sin and draw people to Christ and make Jesus famous and essentially ensure conversions and to help churches to start and put order uh, into kind of the masses of conversions that are happening, first in Jerusalem and then beyond, as we've been seeing. So as gospel is continuing to grow and multiply, people are being saved, churches are being started, or we say planted a lot, more on that later in the series, but persecution is still on the uptick as well. And so uh, last week we read how Herod the king, kind of a puppet king of Rome uh, regionally, killed James, who was the first apostolic martyr. So we've seen martyrs already happen uh, so far up to this point, whether they're named people or unnamed, but James is the first of Jesus' disciples who were killed simply for being a Christian. So last week we read about that and Peter being imprisoned as well and uh, how he escaped. He was going to be killed as well, but he, uh, he escaped by God's grace. Um, today's passage flows from last week's, and so it's a basically kind of a part two, a conclusion to it in a way. Uh, and it's a great little passage that moves, moves us kind of through a range of emotions from resolution and thankfulness to disgust to fear and then finally to the comfort of Christ. And so we'll kind of walk through it basically in that order, uh, but especially ending with Jesus uh, as we always do because that's the, that's the whole point. All right, so Acts 12, 20 to 25 today, six verses. Uh, this theme of Herod versus the word of God or versus Jesus essentially, kind of a cage match here uh, in a way, uh, even though it plays out a little bit differently, but you'll, you'll see in a second. So let's read it in full. Acts 20 and following, or 12, 20 and following. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. All right, so three layers to this today. Uh, We're going to start, I say this a lot, I I use layer term a lot because it just kind of fits with uh, narrative especially, but uh, what I mean by layers today is we're going to start on the surface and drill deeper. So the surface thing just kind of being the most obvious reading in a way, it might, might be for you, I'm guessing it is for you, if it's not, that's fine to you, but I think the most obvious reading here, what's going on kind of thematically and so forth, then we'll drill deeper and ask some very pointed theological questions that I think passages like this uh, raise for us, whether a narrative or, or, or epistle-like, um, this happens to be narrative, but we see it a lot in the Bible. So we'll get to that in, in a few minutes. Uh, But first, on the surface, uh, is Herod versus versus the Word, or versus the Word of God, or versus Jesus. So again, this is the same Herod from last week, if you were here, who killed James and who tried to kill Peter last week, uh, though he escaped. So definitely an enemy of the church here. 
The people of Tyre and Sidon, which is a region northwest of Galilee, I'll do it your way, northwest of Galilee there, and we understand there is just this, this dependence on food, a famine's taking place, there's dependence on food. Herod gives this oration or this speech, which is apparently pretty amazing. He's hailed as a god, doesn't repent in his heart and give God the glory, and is struck down for it. All right, so in a lot of ways, this is just a really simple picture of Christian deliverance here, or deliverance for, for sinners like us, but with these rich word picture effects in the narrative that Luke, the author, kind of weaves, weaves in here. God ultimately is the author, but Luke is the author, weaves in for us. And that is, God destroys the church's enemy. That's basically, in a 30,000-foot view, it's what we're seeing here, is God, is God is destroying or striking down the enemy of the church, the one who has been an antagonist, the one who is against the church, the one who has actually killed some of God's children, some of God's people. God destroys the church's enemy. And, and if you think biblically about other enemies in the Bible, yeah, other, other enemies of the people of God in, in the Bible, uh, like in the Old Testament, like Pharaoh, actually, and I'm, I'm not picking that out of thin air because I'm not going to get into it a lot today because we talked about this last week, but there's a lot of Exodus imagery coming up again, like we talked about last week if you were here, Old Testament Exodus imagery kind of resurfacing in this passage to show us that yet again another Exodus is happening. But maybe you saw this when we read, but people like Herod reflect people like Pharaoh in the Old Testament. They correspond a bit here. There's, they're both approached for food. They're both asked for help during a famine. They're both kingly figures, and they're both struck down by an angel of the Lord. And so a lot of Exodus imagery here that we could spend all morning on, but that's part of the point. And so when we ask this question of how does the Bible handle enemies like that symbolically and theologically? So when the Bible talks about Exodus or slavery or needing redemption or who Pharaoh and Herod truly represent, and really Pharaoh, but we see Herod likened to him, who they represent symbolically, what we, what we ultimately end with, biblically, is that they're pictures of our truest of enemies, which is sin and death. And so then the correspondence is, like here, and this is, the, this is the imagery to the gospel that uniquely we get in Acts 12 that Luke gives us. Like Herod was struck down here, so was your and my sin when we trusted in Jesus for the first time. Basic deliverance, basic gospel imagery. That's really good news for sinners. And in Romans 8.3, we see this as well, where Paul, actually the guy, uh, Saul, who's mentioned here at the end, is the same guy who wrote Romans, but he says when he writes to the Roman church later, by speaking of God, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And so what, what this is saying in part is, in Jesus... Our sin is condemned, not us. Because the flesh, Christ's flesh, or his flesh, or body, was crucified in our place. And so another way to say this would be, and, and to kind of draw from this a bit theologically and practically, because of Jesus, because he became human and died for us, our sin is able to be separated from us without crushing us, because Christ was crushed instead. That's the idea here. And this is a very important verse for other parts in today's passage as well. So um, keep this in the forefront of your mind, or the back of your mind, uh, if you want, as we go through the rest of the morning. We'll come back to it uh, to end because there's some other kind of clauses in Romans 8, 3 that really fit well with um, something that I think God and Luke are doing here in Acts 12. So have that in mind. But for now, that's basic gospel imagery, is that Christ is our Redeemer. Christ has come to throw down sin, and Herod here is a representation of, of that. 
All right, then verse 24, the great contrast. But the word of God increased and multiplied. So Herod was struck down, but the word of God, or Jesus, Jesus is the word of God according to the Bible, so this is not just like the message of Christianity, this is Christ himself. The word of God through the Spirit and the church's message, all that wrapped together, continue to spread, increase, multiply. More people are being saved. They're hearing the gospel. They're confessing their sins to God. They're repenting. They're believing that Jesus died for them, and he rose again. They're putting their trust in Christ to, uh, to be saved. And I think this is helpful because I think there's actually, if you slow down a bit, there's a bit of a range to the word but here. So in other words, it could mean Herod the bad guy died, but the word of God, the good guy, flourished. That's the more obvious reading. I think it does mean that on one level. But it could also mean Herod died, but even so, the word of God flourished. Or it's okay because the word of God is still flourishing. So that's more of a consolation reading that acknowledges that some may have actually feared or worried about Herod's death. Even Christians. He's a political figure who's here trying to help alleviate famine. He had power. People are coming to him tying somehow their, their future well-being to what he's able to give for food and so forth. And so th this secondary reading kind of acknowledges that it would not have been good news for everybody that Herod died. So on one level, to bring this kind of to us a bit here, on one level, the but here is meant to quell our political angst as well. No matter who wins elections the word of God continues to subvert worldly leaders. The outcome here of Herod's death was not God raising up a more Christian puppet king for Rome, but instead to put the focus squarely on the gospel, the word of God. See, God's not interested here in Christianizing the role, necessarily, of, of puppet king of Rome. He's, he's interested in putting the focus on no matter who's in charge, good or bad, Wicked, evil, or righteous, a Christian or not, the word of God will subvert whoever in charge and whatever form of government's taking place to allow the church to grow and people, more and more people to hear about Jesus and be saved. So for us then, this isn't like a big election year, it's, it's coming next year, but like for us, uh, this is a call to not put our hope in earthly princes. Whether we love them or hate them, you can put your hope in them. You could hate them, but still kind of put your hope in them by being wrecked by the fact that they've been elected. It's a little version of putting your hope in them. There's actually, you can, you can move on from politics too because there's a lot of things you could put before the but in this passage to kind of get at the same idea. We could think, I've been diagnosed with cancer, but the word of God will continue to increase and flourish in my life and in the world. We could say, I've lost a loved one, but the word of God will continue to increase and multiply in my life, in my church, in my city, and in the world. My marriage is on the rocks, but the word of God will increase. I'm struggling with deep anxiety, but everything's going to be okay. Because the word of God, the gospel, is going to increase and multiply in me, in my city, in the family I might leave behind if I die early, and in our world. It will happen. It will always win Nothing can stop God from accomplishing his mission. If the tomb didn't stop Jesus from walking out of it three days later, nothing will stop him from saving you. That's where the gospel is, in part, in this passage. 
Acts 12 then says, basically, do you believe this is true? And I'm not just talking about intellectual assent. I mean, do you actually believe it's true? This is the hard work. This is like, this is what gets down to brass tacks. Do you believe this is true? That salvation does not depend on circumstance. Health, marriage, politics, or otherwise, salvation doesn't depend on your circumstance. Isn't that amazing news? I mean, our, our joy, our mental health, and our inner sense of peace actually depend on us answering that question correctly right there. So think about it. All right, drilling deeper. So that's the, that's the surface that you're reading. And surface doesn't mean bad. It just means kind of the initial thing we see. But let's drill a little bit deeper and ask this question. What is sin? And how do we see it defined here in Acts 12? All right, so remember, Herod gives this amazing speech. And what do the people say? They say, the voice, this is the voice of a God and, and not a man. And, and then it says, because he didn't give God the glory, uh, he, was, he was struck down. And by the way, I forgot to mention earlier, but if it seemed weird that he was eaten by worms first and then died, you guys catch that order? Like, if you read it too quickly, you're kind of like, well, he died and then he was buried and worms ate him then. But it actually says, no, uh, he, he was struck down, then worms ate him, and then he breathed his last, which is a tough way to go. But, um, but actually, yeah, Josephus, who is a first century Jewish historian, non-Christian Jewish historian, corroborates this whole thing and recounts it by saying that he, he Herod, was wearing a, a reflective-type silvery material that kind of glistened in the sun. And so people kind of saw him as a, as a godlike, uh, illuminated figure. And then says immediately after this, uh, this kind of call out that, he, that he's a god and not just a human being and didn't repent, he keeled over in stomach pain and went back to his quarters or his home and uh, took, it took five days for him to die. And so he actually had worms. He had this paras- these parasitic worms that just slowly ate him from the, from the inside. So again, that's pleasant. But um, So going back to this, though, uh, this is what happened. So he doesn't give God the glory. He accepts the praise of the, 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 the label as a god, doesn't repent, and, and is struck down. There's a, there's a direct correlation, right? Because he didn't give God the glory, he was struck down. So what does that tell us about sin? It tells us, basically, sin is pride. It's not giving God glory. It's robbing him of his fame. You might look at this and say, man, yeah, that's arrogant, I see, but is that really the worst thing in the world for him to do? Also, didn't he just kill James? And God didn't strike him down for that, right? And that was murder. What the heck's going on? Isn't that backwards? But in reality, pride is the chief sin. And actually, going back to the very beginning of the Bible, pride is what preceded murder. Pride comes in Genesis 3, murder comes in Genesis 4. So both are bad, but but what we see basically in the Bible is that the the problem, sin is ultimately defined here on on the vertical. So murder is actually a breakdown in human relationships, which is is sinful, It, it is bad. And we shouldn't pit these two things against each other too much because they both kind of fill the same bucket. But murder is a breakdown in relationships that ends with extreme suffering. And that's why we might think, because we see it, it's bloody, it's terrible, it it ends a life, it tears relationships apart. 
God is obviously grieved and offended by it as well, but we might think murder is the worst thing for Herod to do here, right? Than simply to accept praise for a good speech? But what this is saying, I think, is actually no. Pride is the worst sin. He's struck down for not giving God the glory, not for murdering one of, one of, his, one of his people, James, even though that's bad. And so, again, I got ahead of myself, but going back to the beginning of the Bible, Adam and Eve, that's where they fall for the devil's lie, that if they ate from this one tree they weren't supposed to eat from, this is what the devil says, you too can be like God. You can know the difference between good and evil and essentially be your own deity and be self-sufficient. That's what it was. The first lie and the first acceptance of that lie, the first sinking of the teeth into that lie and nourishing themselves on that lie was a call to self-sufficiency, a bolstering of the self, individualism, really, which that last Beatles song kind of got at. And so, and we hear echoes of it every day, right? We talk about this a lot, but echoes of it every day in our heart or from other people or in books or movies or a culture at large, we hear echoes of it every single day. Things like, I can do whatever I set my mind to, or I don't need any help. Or I'm inherently good, so religion is a crutch that I actually don't need. Other people do, but I don't need it. Because I'm inherently good. I'm I'm strong. I'm not paralyzed spiritually. Or always the, the, the great one, believe in yourself. This is like the mantra of our culture, but it's actually the antithesis of Christianity. The statement, believe in yourself. And yet we say it all the time. Even Christian parents, you may have said that to your kids just don't do it anymore. Just repent of that. Believe in yourself is like the worst thing we can do. It flows from the Garden of Eden, and it is the lie from the pit of hell that we've all been duped by. Romans 1.23 talks about this. Um, I forgot to put it up here, but Romans 1.23 says, um, and it's, there's context to this, but it talks about how sin is a turning in on the self. So, and, and there's more, but you, you see it really well here where it's describing the problem. It's just, he's describing the world. He says, this, this is where we're at. Humanity has exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like what? Themselves. Mortal human beings. That's what sin is. It's self-worship. It's self-focus. It's self-adoration. It's disbelief in God. It's distrust in God. And downstream from that, it leads to all kinds of hellish things, murder just being one of them. But upstream, the headwaters of sin is what we're seeing here in Acts 12, what Herod did. So, so on one level then, to kind of circle back here a little bit and talk about us, you know, what this means. Um, for Christians, and if you're not a Christian yet too, this is something you can still obviously learn from. But if you're a Christian, this is something, and worthy is too benign of a word, it, there's requires a stronger word, but I'll just say worthy. Something really worthy of trying to kill. So, in part, when you read Acts 12, think, I should kill self-glory. I should give credit to God in all things. I should not be like Herod. I should be known for how continually I thank God for things and how graciously I accept compliments without being overly inflated by them because I didn't really do them anyway. It was just God doing them in me. Or maybe, maybe it's a call to be careful with our social media use, so we're not self-promoting so much, but using it as an opportunity to be thankful 
and to pray for others or, or different things like that. Or maybe a call to practice this, this Jesus' teaching where he says, the least will be the greatest and have that mentality. Or uh, to be like Paul. Uh, this is actually a great thing you see in Acts. It's a strong contrast between Herod and Paul and Barnabas, who are Christian leaders in Acts 14, so coming up pretty soon here, where you see Herod did not give God the glory when he was called a god. But in Acts 14, when Paul and Barnabas are called gods, Paul's response is, or Saul's response is, why are you doing this? We are men also like you, and we bring you good news. But we're just the messengers. We're not, we're not God. We're just the messengers. Angels do this as well. You guys read this in the Bible before, how angels are worshipped sometimes, and they say, get off your face. Stand up. What are you doing? I'm a created being like you. Worship God, not me. But do you see the strong contrast and difference here? Herod didn't do that, but these two men did. Why are you doing this? We are just men. We are not intelligent. We are not, we are not good at things. We're, we're, like Paul says later in his letters, I'm not, even, I'm not a good speaker. I can write pretty well, but I can't speak that well. He's kind of called out for it. It's interesting. But all these things, it's not about them. And I, and I think this bottom passage, this is in part what it looks like to repent. When you see the Bible talk about repentance, this is what it looks like. And I know every day, like, people aren't, like, calling you gods, like, every day, like, down the street. Oh, look, a god, you know, and you have to, like, literally apply this. I, I realize it's not quite that one-to-one. But still, you're complimented, you're praised, you're thanked for things, you are, um, right, you're, you're, we're lifted up some, in, in different capacities. And so when that happens, wh- where's our heart at? And, and this, is, this is a call to, uh, to kill these sinful thoughts. All right? So that's, I think on one level, that this, is, this is important to say. We can look at this contrast and we can, we can say, these two men, or three men, I guess, but the, these two things actually happened 2,000 years ago. Which camp are you going to be in? And just take the right side. But here's the devastating twist. I call it a devastating twist. This is the problem with an overly simplistic, moralistic take on this passage. All right, Here, Here's the twist with all this. Which of us hasn't done what Herod's doing here? Which of us in the room, myself included, hasn't done what Herod's doing? In other words, which of us hasn't been thanked or praised for something and then not given God immediate glory in our hearts or words? Which of us hasn't been at least a little bit prideful at some point in our lives? It's more like saying a lot bit prideful every single day, right? But but which of us has, hasn't been a little bit prideful or arrogant at some point in our lives? So the question then is, why aren't we dropping dead where we stand and sit right now? Why isn't that happening? You see how complicated this gets? The twist? Why aren't we being eaten by worms right now? Okay, there's two, there's two levels to this. The first is, or a few I guess I have here, but two, two primary ones. On one level... We are under the sentence of death, so we will die someday. Like Herod did instantaneously, someday we just will. Maybe even someday soon, maybe even suddenly. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, and this is why we need a Savior who saves us from our sins so that death downstream from sin will dry up like a riverbed and wither away as well. This is why Good Friday happened before Easter. On Good Friday, Jesus dealt with sin 
And on Easter, he dealt with the consequences of sin, which is death. It came after Good Friday. So death or sin first, then death dried up and withered away three days later because it's downstream. This is why we need this kind of Savior. So we have salvation, not just from sins, but from death, even the type of death that Herod himself experienced. On another level, though, this reminds us of God's patience with us right now, presently. So right now in this very room, the patience of God is being expressed to us. Who had, and this is a quote from Romans 3, I don't have this on screen here, but a quote from Romans 3, God who had left the sins of people committed beforehand unpunished. All right, so the, the Bible talks about how God beforehand, he's leaving sins committed, he's leaving punishment for that unpunished for a time until Christ came to absorb them for us. So justice is still done while those who put their faith in Jesus are shown mercy and, and are saved. And so to help us see this, what I want to do is, is kind of circle back one more time to Herod. And, and actually, I think we see this. So basically, number two, uh, Christ, we're seeing this in Acts 12. So we're looking at Romans here as an example of this that teaches it more kind of prepositionally and straightforward. But we actually see it right in the narrative too in Acts 12. And to do that, I want to, I want to circle back to Herod one more time, but from a different angle, with a different interpretational lens, as if the role in the story that Herod plays is not to be paradigmatic of what happens to everyone with pride immediately. It can't be. Otherwise, no one would be left on earth one second from now. Oh, there's one, and we're still here. So we know that can't be it. So his death, Herod's death, is not just a moral lesson, but a reference to something else. Strangely, the solution. All right, so when we ask this third question here, or third, third layer, going even deeper into this passage, what is the solution? When we look at Herod in this lens, Herod not only resembles us in his sin, we've talked about that on the second layer, but he also resembles Jesus in his death. We've seen Luke do this before in Acts. If you guys have been here for a few weeks, uh, we saw it a few weeks ago. Back in Acts 5, we saw it with uh, Ananias and Sapphira. We saw it there. Um, way back in our Judges series, we did quite a bit of this as well, if you're here for that, just for kind of a frame of reference here. But this is, I, I'm saying this to, to tell you the Bible does this all over the place. And if we don't understand this, we will not understand what it means. The Bible uses the antagonists to point to the protagonist. And not by way of contrast, but even by way of similarity, which is really odd. But, but here, here's how this passage does it, all right? Isaiah 53, 4, which is a prophecy of Christ in the Old Testament, says about Jesus ahead of time, surely... He took up our pain and he bore our suffering, speaking of Christ. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. So key word being stricken here. The, the idea is Jesus willingly went to the cross, being obedient to God his Father, cooperating with God the Father's plan to save the world from its sin by being struck for us so we'd be saved. The correlation then is in Acts 12, 23, we see the same word in reference to Herod. But Herod and Jesus are both kings who are struck down by God, who experience hellish things like worms on Herod's side of things and pain and separation from God on Jesus' side of things, who, quote, breathe their last, 
both deaths contain that exact phrase, and whose deaths precede a notable expansion of the word and the gospel. Now, obviously, there are differences, too. Herod was a sinner. Jesus wasn't. Herod was a sinner, but Jesus kind of became sin temporarily. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.21? I've referenced that a lot in this uh, series already so far, where it says Jesus, who knew no sin, who wasn't a sinner, became sin so that in him we might become cleansed or become the righteousness of God. Or remember Romans 3. We looked at this earlier. Let's bring this back to the forefront of your minds and think about this from a slightly different angle. Romans 3, it says, Jesus was sent in the likeness of what? Sinful flesh. Okay, this is not just talking about the incarnation. It's saying that he's taking on sinful flesh. The, the idea being that he became like Herod would be after him so that we would be spared. Or, or to, to paraphrase Romans 8.3 with a touch of Acts 12 language, Jesus was sent in the likeness of sinful Herod, though he was perfect. And through his death, he absorbed Herod-like sins so that we wouldn't be struck down for them. See, when we talk about what the solution is, a vague notion of God just being patient with us is not the answer. It's too vague. It's too broad. It's good, to talk about God being patient is a very good thing, worthy of reflection on and singing about all of that. For sure, it's good. But it's not enough, and it's because the Bible goes further. So if we stop there, we don't go as far as what, what God intends biblically. And what, what I mean is this. It's how his patience was shown. That is, through Christ's substitutionary death, so God's wrath could be poured out on someone else besides us. So justice would be, still be done, but mercy would also come in like a flood to the undeserving. And, and so to come around to our question again, why are we still seated here and why am I standing here and we're not falling over dead and being eaten by worms? What's the answer to that question? The answer is him. That's the only reason. Him who was struck for us, who was stricken for us, who was cursed for us, who went through what Herod went through, but worse, for us. Another king who was perfect and good and who loved you and me, but who was sent in the likeness of our sinful flesh, died for us. Think about what it, was like, what it would have been like for the crowds in Acts 12 who are watching Herod keel over in stomach pain and get the news a few days later that he, that he, that he was dead and maybe connect some of these dots. I don't know if they did or not, but let's just say they did. Think about what that would have been like. All this, in, this entire crowd watching Herod get struck down for what sin? Pride. Who themselves had pride, but weren't dying. So I'm saying the same thing here and talking to us as people who are undeservingly still breathing, though we've had pride before. It's the same thing for the crowds who said, who, and who blasphemed, who said the voice of a god and not of a man, who are actively sinning against God, ascribing glory to someone else besides God, who are not being struck down, unfair. But this is the whole gospel point. Like the crowds in Acts 12 who watched Herod die, but who had committed the exact same sins themselves at other times in their lives and presently, and who lived unfairly, 
So in faith do we watch Jesus die for us, though we deserve the same fate. See, then when we come to understand this, and this is the gospel, when we come to understand this, just how much God has loved us in this way, how much he spent, how much blood he spilt, how much suffering he endured, and just how little we have done to save ourselves, how it's not about us at all, no good works whatsoever give us any credit before God. When we come to understand that, do you see how that starts to help us with the sin of self-glory? See, when we talk about pride, it's not as though we're just saying, though this is a big part of it, that Christ forgives us of our pride and he dies for our pride and he, he absorbs it on the cross. He wore it for us as a substitute. That's gloriously true, but it's not just that. It's also true to say, that it starts to work, the power of the Holy Spirit starts to work in our lives and loosen pride's grip on our souls. In other words, it liberates us not to think about ourselves that much anymore because we've been saved and loved. And instead just to be others focused and love other people because we're not saved by works but by Jesus going through much more than just worms for you and me. Let me read this final thing to you guys. Um, This is and I'm just going to read this. There's lots of ways this could be worded. Um, when we conclude here, th- these are the two things. Actually, the first thing first. With Acts 12, we need to believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, or we will die forever. This is, in part, the darker side of the passage. We need to be saved. Herod wasn't. But in, in this very room, we're hearing God's patience expressed through Christ. We're hearing him say, I love you. I'm passing over your sins and pouring them out on my son instead of you. So believe in him, trust him, cling to him, and you'll be saved as well. We have to do that. As we think about how to kill self-glory by the Spirit and how to be better users of our time and thankers of God with words and thoughts and deeds and so forth. That's, That's good too. But belief is the bigger point because as we've seen, moralism is too simplistic. It doesn't answer all the questions in this passage. So that, that's the first thing. Believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. Christian and not. Believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. Second, let him or it, Christ, the him, the gospel, the it, shape in you a mindset like this. And, and I'll close with this and we'll, and we'll pray. The praise of man is fickle and non-satisfying anyway. So in Christ... It's enough that I am known by God and loved by him even unto his death for me. I have my prize, Jesus himself. I need no other. So in the name of Jesus Christ, I slay my sin of self-glory. I bend the knee to my creator, putting him at the center of my life, him at the center of my ambitions, him at the center of my hopes, and all of my plans. He is my king forever. Let me pray and we'll respond with uh, one way of doing that, which is worship through thankful singing. God, thank you for this passage. Uh, It is dark, uh, but you are the light. Thank you for the the mystery, the tension, the unfairness we see here, the non-linear way in one sense that you work. Um, If it were linear, none of us would take our next breath. If it were moralistic, none of us would take our next breath. It has to be about something else. And when we drill deeper and deeper, we see that 
everything is about Christ. It's his patience, God's patience through Jesus is in, is in this passage. Christ's death is in Herod's death. Uh, we're going, we go back to see how even Christ's uh, victorious deliverance of us is seen in the striking down of Herod beforehand. But all this is by grace. There is no call to, to be good here. There is no call to keep the law. There is no call here to covenantally, uh, on a conditional level, uh, keep up our end of the bargain, but to simply be recipients of the word, recipients of grace, recipients of the gospel. Thank you that yet again, the Bible beats this drum, it sings this song, it holds up this mantra and banner for us to have our life underneath, uh, God. So please, please, please free us, deliver us from ourselves, not just the bad things we've done, but ourselves for replacing you with good things. Forgive us for, for striving to be good apart from you, for being our own mini-gods, for being individualists to a fault, for, for self-adoration, for self-glory. God, help us not just to be saved from that, but through Christ to be God-glorifiers, to be men and women who put you with word, deed, thought, action in the context of the church and outside, you at the center on the throne as the one who came into the world to become like us, and not just like us, but to become like us in our sinful flesh so that sin would be condemned and not us. Because Christ in the flesh was condemned in our, in our place. Amazing love, amazing substitution. The, the genius of God to be just and yet to be loving and salvific for his people at the same time. The only way was the God-man, the Christ-man, who was perfect but kind of became sin in a way too, God. So anyway, I pray the gospel would just blow our minds this week and that you would make us joyful, uh, have more peace, and um, more others focused because we've been saved by grace, not by works. Let that produce the fruit of that spirit in our lives as a community this week. And we pray it all in your name. Amen.